Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. My name is David. I get to be uh, one of the pastors that has the honor of serving here at Frontline Edmond. Let's pray before we continue in the series, Rhythms of Grace, together for one another. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm really thankful for each and every one of my friends. And we just stop and remember that you're in control, you're sovereign. And we're not here by accident this morning. Like this group of people hearing this text in this moment is, is your good plan. And so we, in light of all the ways that you love and lead us, ask for the gift of presence that we would, we know you're here, but we pray that you would help us be here with open hearts for everything that you have. And, and as we so often pray, help me um, as a very imperfect pastor <laughs> to, to point to a perfect savior. We pray Jesus all this in your name. God's people together said, amen, amen. So my family and I got to go to student camp for the first time this year, um, which was super fun. My daughter, Jubilee, it was her first year at camp. She's right here in the front row. She was super excited about going and maybe a little marginally less excited about going when she found out her whole family would be dropping in on camp the second day. So we were there to cheer her on. She would round the corner with her friends and we'd be like, yeah, you're doing so good at volleyball. You're the best camper. And she was a, a great sport about it. But the, I asked some good friends uh, uh, that went to camp. Hey, what was the best part about camp? What was the worst part about camp? And they said the best part were these evening parties. The worst part was like the 127 degree heat. But the best part were these parties. They had like a, a party every night. We were there for the second party. It was the first party for my family to go to, and it was a Western party. And so after the main session with the worship and, and prayer, they would wrap up the night every night with a party. And on Tuesday night or Wednesday night, whatever night it was, Western party. And I was really impressed with the quality of country songs that were being chosen at this party, right? Um, I won't go down that rabbit hole, but it was, it was quality stuff. But there was a moment like there are at many dance parties where there's a lull, right? And the dance floor was getting kind of sparse and the camper who is the DJ, being a good DJ, sensed what was happening, and she, she got it back on track. She dropped the needle on this song. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living, really getting by. It's all taking and no giving, they just use your mind. Now, this is what happened. Sprinting back to the dance floor, especially teenage girls. I don't know if this song has experienced like a resurgence on TikTok or something, or, or just like I have underestimated the musical taste of Gen Z because those girls in particular knew every word, right? It was awesome. It was awesome. Working nine to five. Yeah, they got you where they want you. There's a better life and you dream about it, don't you? It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it. And you spend your life putting money in his wallet. Dolly Parton is punk rock more than we realize, right? Like she's, she's not messing around with this song. And yet, like, I think this isn't just a song that, that we all enjoy because it's Dolly and we know we ought to and because it's, it's just got a good beat. But she does tend to, like, capture something about work that we all feel. Like, in essence, something that's complex or broken or fraught 
with our relationship with work. Americans on average, I I got this from different sources this week, same number. Americans on average work 90,000 hours, 90,000 hours work hours in our lifetime. That's 3,750 days. That's over 10 years of our life we spend on the job. So that begs the question, the really important question, like how do we view work? What role does work have in our lives? In the last several weeks, we've been in this series over the summer called Rhythms of Grace, which is another way, I think a better way to probably frame something that is a part of the Christian life called spiritual disciplines. Things that aren't easy, that can often be hard, but are good because they're practices that we live out, regular rhythms of grace in our life, regular occurrences where we experience undeserved good gifts from God. So we've talked about things like prayer and gospel community and fasting and reading God's word and study. And if you pick up a book on spiritual disciplines, and there are many, and they are mostly really, really good, I think one shortcoming in all those books is they're always going to have a chapter on rest, and none of them that I know about have a chapter on work. And so today, we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline, the rhythm of grace that is really important, which is the Christian practice of work. And when I say work, I mean all kinds of work. Some of you own your own business, like we prayed for today. Some of you are staying home and raising a family. Some of you are entering into a sales career. Some of you are students. Some of you are teachers or administrators. Some of you teach fitness classes. Some of you are executives. Some of you work in the service industry. You're medical professionals. Every type of work you can imagine is all included. This is for each and every one of us. And to understand the invitation we have to live out work as a spiritual discipline, a rhythm of grace, a place that we get to encounter the presence and the formation of God in our life, we need to go to the very beginning. So that's where we're going to start first. And we're going to see as we go to the beginning that work is a gift from God. Let's look again at those verses that Ashley read so well, just a portion of them. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And then skip down to verse 14, if you're following along in your Bible. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. What do you think of when you think of paradise? I literally searched for paradise this week on, on the, online, on the World Wide Web. I Google imaged paradise, and I counted something like 100 images that came up on the search engine I used, and, and they all were some version of something like this, Right? So when we think of paradise, when we think of perfection, when we think of living in a state that is paradise, we think of, of the absence of work, don't we? I, I do. 
The internet says we do. We think of getting away from work. We think of paradise being incompatible with work. Our vision of paradise is getting away from, at best, the inconvenience, and at worst, the evil of work. Naturally, then, when we think of the garden, when we think of the paradise that God placed our original parents, Adam and Eve, in, we think of it as kind of like this all-inclusive resort. Adam's there sipping his mojito, and, and Eve has her Mai Tai, the virgin, of course, daiquiris, you know, and they're, they're sitting there, and they're talking about how they're going to get a couple's massage from angels later and, like, swim with some dolphins, Right? We don't get that view when we read scripture. That life, a perfect life in communion with God as humans were created to live is not one absent of work, but we see God creates and blesses humanity and he gives them this massive honor and task call to work, to rule over the entire world under his good rule. And they're charged to work and fill the earth with God's glory and order and reflect his presence. They were taken to this garden that God had planted and they're charged, as we saw in verse 15, to work it, to keep it in such a way, when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, that 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 beauty would grow and spread all over the earth. God's job description for humanity is what theologians often call the cultural mandate. There's a guy named Richard Pratt who describes this cultural mandate, this job description for humanity given by God in his book, Design for Dignity. He says this, God ordained humanity to be the primary instrument by which his kingship will be realized on earth. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says, and I'm making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work, he writes. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and develop to its fullness. So what we're seeing here is it's, it's simple, but it's profound, and it's often something that we miss, that God called people to work in paradise. God gave work as a good gift. When he made all things and he made them well, work was a part of that. So work isn't a result of sin. Work isn't a result of the fall. It preceded sin. It preceded the fall. It's not a necessary evil. It's a gift from God. Work is an essential good. And that means something for how we view the Christian life, right? That we shouldn't view this hour and 15 minutes that we spend here or even the two plus hours we spend in gospel community as some sacred chunk of time on our calendar and then the rest is secular and it's not as important or holy or spiritual. But if we get a vision that work is an essential good and it's a gift from God, that means that work is no less spiritual than prayer or Bible reading or fasting or gospel community. Nancy Percy wrote a book called Total Truth, and she says this to help us grasp this. 
The ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or an endless vacation or even a monastic retreat into prayer and meditation, but creative effort expended for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. Our calling is not just to go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth, not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, remember God's job description given to spread his glory, to go about work, she writes, we participate in the work of God himself. So that all sounds profound and awesome. Maybe not profound. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. It sounds helpful, maybe interesting, intriguing. But if we're honest, and some of you might be here, we can say, hey, sure, that's great that work is a a good gift from God. But if that's the case, why does it feel so awful so much of the time? Like I have my dream job in so many ways, and still there's a good chunk of the time where I'm like, Donut shop. I could open a donut shop, right? And some of you don't have your dream job, and so you're dreaming about whatever it is a lot of the time. If work is so good and it's a gift, why is it often not life-giving? Why is it so draining? Why is it a, a place of despair so much more than joy so often? What happened? That's the second thing we need to see, that although work is a good gift from God, work is also wrecked by sin, See, instead of at the beginning, even though they're created to live in paradise, and part of that was, was work, our original parents, Adam and Eve, the heart of what they did, what was happening below the surface in their chest, they didn't just take a piece of fruit and take a bite. That wasn't the primary issue. The issue goes much deeper than that. The primary issue of that action was an artifact of the state of their heart, and the state of their heart in that moment was to say, hey, God, we can do better without you. You made us. You made everything good, but we can improve on your lack, right? We can we can be our own authority, and in doing so, we don't need you. You don't know what's best. You're holding out. We know what's best. You don't know full wisdom. We have a greater wisdom than you, God. This is the essence of what sin is. It's to run away from the author of life, rejecting his wisdom, his rule, his love. And when you run away from the author of life, you run to death. And that's why the wages of sin, this rebellion against God, is death. And that leads to a a chaos and a destruction in the life of Adam and Eve. It also leads to a chaos and destruction in the very essence of creation, which includes work. Genesis 3, 17 explains this. And to Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
So this is the world in which we are born in, where sin has wrecked work, and this is the choice that we all walk out in our own sinful rebellion and brokenness. We all make that decision in our life and when it comes to work to say, God, you don't know best, I know best. And so work is wrecked for all of us as well. And instead of worshiping God through our work, we worship creation and try to get it to replace God. Instead of engaging work as a gift from God, it becomes our God. Our work is cut off from God, and as a result, it's always curse. So it's painful, it's fruitless, it's filled with toil, as it's written, thorns and thistles. So what does this look like in our life? It takes different forms, and it's probably greater than this or worse than this, however you want to frame it, but it's no less than this. Two ways, I think, in our life we experience work being wrecked by sin. And I think the first way is work is everything, Work is wrecked by sin when we view work as our king, our identity, our salvation, our peace. When we get ultimate significance and security that's found in and through our work on the throne that sits on the heart of our life, our job sits there. It rules over us. And when work is everything, we view ourselves and we view others that we work with or we're in community with as little more than productivity machines. Their significance, their value is ultimately defined by work. It's directly tied to what they do and how well they do it. You sense this when you go to your high school reunions. (laughs) What do you do? Now, that can be a really helpful question because somebody wants to get to know where you're at, but you can also sense sometimes that behind that is just a wave of judgment. Do you stack up on my grid for the value of a person? When we view work as everything, in a big way, work is wrecked by the sin of overwork. This is historically something that that I struggle with a lot. And my heart breaks sometimes when I look at seasons of my life where I sinfully overworked and I missed out on precious things. And I suspect many of you struggle with that too. I love Japanese culture. I got to even, with my wife, go spend a couple of weeks in Japan many years ago because we had some friends that were stationed there. And the Japanese have a word, kiroshi, which literally means death by overwork. Such a common occurrence that they, they named it, that there's a, such a culture of overwork in that country that people often enough have their heart stop on the job that they had to come up with a term to say, yeah, work killed them. And yet... Americans work more hours than anyone else in the world. 137 more hours per year than the Japanese. 260 more hours per year than the British. 499 more hours than the French, which is not a surprise to me. (laughs) The 40-hour work week is a thing of the past. Nearly 90% of Americans, I think it's specifically 86 in the stat that I read, work far more than 45 hours any given average week. But then on the flip side of the coin, you have work is everything, and that's the way that we approach work and sinful brokenness. And then we approach work and sinful brokenness by viewing work as evil. When we view work as evil, it means that we view work as a means to an end or an obstacle to avoid as much as possible. We tolerate the minimum amount of pain that it is, that is work to experience the max amount of pleasure. And we're always trying to just dial in that equation. I want to work as little as possible so I can experience the most pleasure as possible. Because work 
is a stain in my life. But I want to work so I can really get to living by buying experiences or comforts or products that are really going to make me happy. I was thinking this week of a moment, and Anna, I don't know if you remember this. We were here. We were at the lake with a friend of ours years and years ago, and he was discussing his frustration with his job, and he was getting really animated and frustrated, and he began to pound on a picnic table and said, people I work with work, they, they, they live to work, and I, I'm different. I, I work to live. And the sentiment of that I kind of get but really what he was saying is, hey, I only work to live. And if you dig down into that statement, he's saying work is evil. It's an inconvenience. And I'm not really, if, if he truly believes what he's saying, and if we kind of test that motto, that means that he can't really be alive at work if he only works to live. The real life actually can't be experienced on the job. That's an inconvenience. It's evil. It's something that you just have to stomach so you can get to really living. And as a result, then that view leads to underwork. According to recent data released from Gallup, only 13% of employees are engaged in their job. Only 13% of people on the job are engaged in their jobs. That means emotionally invested in what they do. They care about what they're doing. They're focused in helping their organization improve. It's only 13%. 63%, Gallup says, are not engaged in their job, which means they're simply unmotivated and they're just going to do the bare minimum. They're, they're not going to exert any extra effort, which means, Gallup says, 24%, nearly one out of four people are actively disengaged, which means they're truly unhappy and they're intentionally unproductive. Several years ago, this, this made national news. There was this uh, civic, civil servant uh, employee uh, for a city called Menden in Germany, and he texted, a, or he didn't text, he wrote up an email that was like a farewell email to his department in the city for his retirement. And he said, I haven't been working or doing anything for 14 years, so I'm well prepared for retirement. Adieu, right? And this made national news, and the mayor had to hold press conferences and was freaking out, you know? And I, I don't think his experience is actually that unique. The Atlantic article that made reference to this story, it's called Not Working at Work. It says the average American employee spends an hour and a half to three hours focusing on personal activities during their day, not their job. It holds up as an artifact of this that the mass majority of online personal purchases are made between nine and five. You're not filling out that TPS report. You are cruising on Amazon for Prime Day, right? But we get to this point, right? We're like, okay, that sounds really heavy and that sounds broken, but why is it this way? Because work is hard. Work is wrecked by sin. We make it everything or we make it evil and both views lead to broken places. We overwork, we underwork, we look for work to name us and define us and be our salvation, or we, we view it as our heaven, or we view it as our hell. 
and none of it is working. And maybe it's none of those things. We're somewhere in the middle and we're just confused and we're trying to grind it out every day without really knowing how, as a follower of Jesus, we ought to engage in work and what it looks like. If Jesus says he came for us to have life abundantly, if as, as we began the series, we, we saw that Jesus wanted his disciples to know his joy fully and completely in an overflowing way, what does that mean for these 90,000 hours of our life that we spend working? Well, that leads us to the, the last thing we need to see, that work is redeemed in Jesus. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 3 about the work of Jesus. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us, right? So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul is saying that, hey, Adam, he, he rejected the rule of God. He, he broke with God. He broke his own life. He broke work. But here, Jesus Christ is the second Adam, the better Adam, the perfect image bearer, the very son of God, who's the ultimate perfect human. And he lives perfectly. He lives perfectly for us. And that includes, by the grace of God, the way he approached work. He's the only perfect person, and he perfectly modeled what it means to work. He wasn't just some spiritual leader who went away to the top of a mountain and was too good for work. He came and he got his hands dirty. He went about work for the glory of God. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, built things. He was a hardworking carpenter who never did shoddy work. This is what Dorothy Sayers writes in her book, Why Work? Speaking of Jesus and his work ethic. She writes, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, dare I swear, came out of the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. See, Jesus taught us how to live and work in a way that the Father intended for humanity to go about engaging in work. And more importantly, he, he died to pay the price for our sins, yes, but that includes our broken, sinful relationship with work. By dying and rising from the dead, he redeems us from the curse. Every area of our life, he, he wants to saturate. Every aspect he wants to rule over and bring redemption to. And that means he's king of our work. He redeems our work with spiritual significance and meaning because he is Lord of our work. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And later on in verse 23, Paul gets specific. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Listen to these six words. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. So you might have a job description, right? 
and it tells you what your job is about. But if you're a follower of Christ, there is actually a higher, transcendent, deeper, more meaningful job description you have. According to Paul, you are serving the Lord Christ, whatever you do. How beautiful and significant and wonderful is that? I was thinking, even this morning, Anna Anna and I watched, I think, a documentary or show about Elizabeth Holmes, who was this brilliant, driven entrepreneur who became the youngest female billionaire in history, and she started this company that was uh, supposed to provide really pain-free, significant, detailed blood testing, and yet her drive as a child and all her brilliance and all her leadership and all her gifting, smarter than anybody in this room, her, her drive, it seems, from a child was to be a billionaire. It was all about being rich, being significant, accomplishment. But what if, if she knew Jesus and went about her work not f- to, to accumulate billions and not for, for glory, but actually recognizing that even though she started her own company, that her boss was the king of the universe and her creator who died for her and loved her deeply? How differently would that endeavor have gone? See, there's a boss that we all have on paper. And even if, as we prayed for you today, you own your own company, you're actually not without a boss if you follow Jesus, right? Paul is saying, you have a capital B boss who made all things and has ultimate authority over everything you do. You are serving the Lord Christ. So how would we embrace this reality? How would it change our perception of work? Even if we don't love our job, even if our job is really hard. The greatest revival that's happened in church history was the Reformation. And one of the beautiful things that happened in the Reformation was the renewal, the restoration of a sacred view of work. That there wasn't the secular, sacred divide. It wasn't like, hey, if you work at a church, right, then you have a meaningful, significant job. But if you're a shoemaker or a farmer, like that doesn't count. Like that was laid waste to through the Reformation. That everything can be done for the glory of Jesus. So Martin Luther, during the time of the Reformation, he writes this. What would you do if Christ himself with all the angels were visibly to descend and command you in your home to sweep your house and wash the pans and the kettles? I need that to happen with my kids. Not you, Juby. Or you, Anderson. I'm talking about your younger brother and sister. You guys are great. I need to stop using these illustrations. How happy, this back to Martin Luther, how happy you would feel and would not know how to act for joy. Not for the work's sake, but that you knew that thereby you were serving him, God, who is greater than heaven and earth. What you do in your house is worth as much if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and pleasing to God not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. He's a smart guy. So what does that look like practically? Like if, if we're holding in our hearts and our heads right now what is facing us tomorrow morning, 
How can we go about work, as Martin Luther writes here, as worship? Well, here, here I'm going to rapid fire a bunch of things in Scripture. This isn't certainly all of them, but here's some of them, and it's a start. And if you get your phones out, you can take pictures. Um, I'll know you're not on Facebook or something. So feel free to, I'm going to go quickly, and you can email me or whatever. I'll share them with you if you don't catch them all. This is a lot. Work is worship when we work with a view towards pleasing God, not men. That's Colossians chapter 3. We read it, verse 23. Work is worship when we work with a view towards pleasing God. Genesis 39 and, and, and Psalm 15 says, work is worship when we are honest, even when it hurts and it, it's, there's great cost to us and we might not even get ahead when we go about work in honesty. It's worship to God. Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he writes again to the church in Rome in chapter 13 that work is worship when we honor our bosses, our superiors, and submit to their authority, that we work hard for them. In Romans 12, Paul writes again, and then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, work is worship when we treat our, our coworkers with neighborly love, with kindness and respect. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that work is worship when we fight for honesty and ethical behavior, when we fight for what's right. Paul says that when we see things that are injustice and brokenness in work, that it's worship to shine a light in the darkness of those things that ought not be. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and he says work is worship when we pray about work, when we approach it prayerfully. Work is worship when we oh, listen. Work is worship when we have avoid complaining and grumbling about work, even when it's hard. Man, if we just remember that, Philippians chapter two, Paul writes about that. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, and and Ecclesiastes chapter five tells us that work is worship when we refuse to make work and money our idols, but when we keep it in its rightful place under the rule of God. Work is worship when we live simply and give generously. Proverbs 22 and Paul again to the young pastor, Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And lastly, work is worship when we trust God enough to rest from work and practice Sabbath delight. Psalm 46 verse 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, 13 through 15. So where do we go from here? How do we respond? Well, if you're here today and you're back in church for the first time in a long time, if you're just exploring Christianity, you're, you're not sure what you believe, what I long for you to hear today, that it, it, work isn't evil. We talked about that. Work isn't everything. Your life is far too important to give for the purpose solely of work. It's not your ultimate purpose, your ultimate significance. But what I, what I hope you remember and what you hear is that there's a God who loves you. There's a God who made you. And he cares so deeply about every aspect of your life. There isn't something that you will go about that is insignificant to him. When you go to work later today or tomorrow, he's not unaware or uninterested in that. He loves you and so he cares about your endeavors. He loves you enough to, to go to work, to live a life, Jesus, of insignificance and poverty and sacrifice 
to, to himself live out the challenge and the pain and the toil of work. And he did all that in love for you. He did the greatest work in the universe, which is to live perfectly yet lay his perfect life down for you so that you can know forgiveness and love for all the ways that you've rebelled and run from God. The punishment and the cost and the price to bear for that, he bore it for you. And so the call today isn't just to make him Lord of your work. It's more than that. It's to make him Lord of your life, to give him everything. And in doing so, you would know true life, abundant life, true joy. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, our invitation is to embrace working as a rhythm of grace. And maybe just maybe in a culture that's marked so often by overwork or underwork or viewing work as everything or viewing work as evil, maybe one of the most significant ways we as a congregation in Edmond, Oklahoma, could go about shining a light and pushing back darkness is is to live out the rhythm of grace that is work. That people would see the way in which we go about work and that Jesus would be glorified and be open to hearing who our king is and how that changes how we go about working. That we would remember our true boss, that we would work ultimately to to honor Jesus, that we would, even if we have a job right now that's really hard, that we would know that God has given us that job now, even as we might look for another and we go about that job in an honorable way, embracing it, even enjoying it because we know we're not alone in it and that we would be on time and be present and work hard and give it all we have and seek to be excellent in our field or what we go about, not for our own glory, but to glorify Jesus, who's our king, our boss. And to be realistic, and this is the next thing, that even as we embrace work as a rhythm of grace, that we would know that we're waiting as we work. What do I mean by that? Well, it's from my friend, Pastor Bob Tathun. This is what he has to say about work and waiting. Don't expect life at work to be peachy. We all know the way too happy Christians who go to work thinking that since they love Jesus, everything's going to work out. It's not. You might miss your quota. You might lose a client. You might get fired. You might have conflict with your boss or your coworkers. These don't mean that Jesus doesn't love you or that God is punishing you. Rather, they are the inevitable result of living in a fallen world. Remember thorns and thistles. Work is cursed. Work is affected by the fall. Work doesn't always work the way it should So have a massively God-sized view of the holiness of work, creation, but be realistic about the fall too. The final thing Pastor Bob says is Jesus hasn't come back yet. So even as we work as a rhythm of grace, even as we work as worship, that is no guarantee that work will be easy and not an experience of toil or hardship. And as it is, that's an invitation for us to remember that there is the day coming. As we go about our Monday and it's hard, we can remember that there is a day coming. The day when Jesus has promised he will come back and make all things new. And that's not a day after which those who are in Christ Jesus will experience eternal vacation. There will still be work to do, but it will be beautiful and it will be meaningful And it will be without the thorns and thistles that's brought about by the brokenness of sin. And when it's hard, we can just remember to pray for that day. Come, Lord Jesus.
And then the last thing we can do is embrace rest as a rhythm of grace. Brian Chappell, who's a brilliant pastor, wrote a book just this month called Grace at Work. And in it, he says, God can do more with our lives in six days than we can do of seven, in seven days of nonstop labor. And so some of you are like me, and you're like just tricky or twisted enough to, to take all this and only hear parts of it where you're like, okay, I just got a lot of justification for my overwork. And so you just have to come back next week, all right? You just have to come back next week because next week, one of my favorite preachers of all time is going to be here to talk about the rhythm of grace that is Sabbath rest. And to really know the rhythm of grace that is work, we have to hold it in partnership with the rhythm of grace that is rest. So let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of work. But more than that, we thank you for the work that we benefit from that is the work of Christ Jesus, a perfect life lived, a perfect life given for us. And so we invite you, Lord, to be Lord of all of our lives, that your care and concern for us, it has no bounds, that your love and your will it is not limited. You care for us here on a Sunday and you care for us no less on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or any day that we have at work. And so we pray to a greater and greater degree that we would meet you and your rule and your love for us as we go about our endeavors for your glory. Would you help us do this, Spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen.